You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part seven in our series on Hernan Cortez and the conquest of Mexico. Well, it has been quite the ride with Cortez, and the end is in sight. Today, we bring together the Spanish invaders and the Aztec Empire in an epic clash for control of Mexico. So, last time we concluded with the Spanish and their Indian allies preparing to launch an all out push against the heart of the Aztec world, the capital of Tenochtitlan. Let's start today with a few reminders. It is the spring of 1521. Cuauhtémoc is now the emperor, following the death of his uncle, Quilauec, who died of smallpox. In fact, smallpox had spread throughout the empire, killing upwards of half of the population and causing food shortages throughout the region. Cortés had returned to the Valley of Mexico, taking control of Texcoco, and making it a base for his operations against the Aztecs. The Spanish would push north and south, fighting a number of battles and essentially encircling the lakes that made up the valley. Cortez and his captains would capture a number of key locations and bottle up many of the towns and villages on the shores of the lakes. In the process, the Spanish had gotten some of the local towns and kingdoms to abandon the Aztecs and join them. These defectors included Chalco, an important city to the south, and many Texcocans. Some people may ask why this happened. Why did the indigenous people side with these newcomers instead of banding together and fighting them? Well, one reason was the fear of Cortez's wrath. As we have seen, those that defied the Spanish ended up dead or enslaved. But the biggest reason was a long and deep resentment towards Tenochtitlan. Frankly, many of these towns and cities were tired of being dominated by them, and the Spanish arrival gave spark to a situation that had been waiting to explode. So, the Spanish armies did what they needed to do on land, encircling the lakes and poising themselves for a push into Tenochtitlan. And that leads us to Cortez's plan to launch 13 ships on Lake Texcoco, a way to break the naval advantage that the Aztecs enjoyed. This was critical to Cortez for a few reasons. To control the lakes meant denying food and water and supplies and reinforcements to Tenochtitlan. Until he did that, the Aztec capital could withstand a siege almost indefinitely. Also, the ships would provide combat support for the Spanish as they moved along the causeways leading into the cities. And finally, another essential thing that they would do was provide transportation and communication throughout the lake. The Spanish will establish several bases around the lakes, and they will use the ships to transfer men and supplies or deliver messages in an expedited manner. This will greatly aid the Spanish throughout the upcoming siege. So that's about it. Let's get to the siege of Tenochtitlan. 
Cortez's master shipbuilder, Martin Lopez, would launch his fleet on April 28, 1521. The class Colin and Texcocan laborers had dug a mile-long canal from the shipyard to Lake Texcoco for this moment, a stupendous feat. The fleet consisted of 13 brigantines. These were roughly 45 to 50 feet in length and could be propelled by oar and by sail. Each carried roughly 25 men, including a dozen oarsmen and another dozen crossbowmen and arquebusiers, not to mention a captain. Each ship had a small cannon mounted on its bow. One of the ships was a bit larger than the others. This was called La Capitina and would be the fleet's flagship. So, with the fleet ready, Cortes sent out calls to his native allies to gather their forces and join him for one final push against Tenochtitlan. Thus, the first few weeks of May would be spent gathering allies and preparing for this final campaign. Regarding the army, Cortes organized them into four divisions. One of these was a naval division, which he would personally command. The land divisions would be armies commanded by three of his most capable captains, Pedro de Alvarado, Gonzalo de Sandoval, and Cristobal de Olid. Each would have roughly 150 foot soldiers, 30 cavalry, and some arquebusiers. There would also be a contingent of native soldiers, each at least 10 to 20,000 strong. I do want to mention that Cortes still held out hope that the Aztecs would surrender. He wanted Tenochtitlan attacked if possible, and he hoped that Cuauhtémoc would see that the odds were now stacked against him and realize that submitting was his only real option. But that was not going to happen. Cuauhtémoc would never entertain surrendering to Cortes. He vowed to fight to the end, and he would never waver on that vow. Now, before we set off on our final campaign, I do want to mention one thing that occurred. Zicotenga the Younger, the son of the Klaus Colin leader, arrived at this time with several thousand warriors to join the campaign. However, something would happen that caused Cortes to accuse Zicotenga of treason. The circumstances of this situation are not totally clear, but we should remember that Zicotenga had never been a big fan of Cortes, and he had even recommended turning on the Spanish the previous summer after their defeat in Tenochtitlan. Thus, Cortes probably did not like the guy, and he may have wanted him gone. Historians believe that a rival chief may have lodged the accusations against Zicotenga to further his own ambitions, or even at Cortes's request. No matter, Zicotenga the Younger would be hanged in Texcoco for his supposed crimes. Now, the killing of such a prominent Colin noble, you would think, would raise some concerns. The Colins were, after all, the most loyal and valuable ally the Spanish had. But the ramifications appear to have been minimal. It may have been that the Colins were happy to be rid of a major contender for their throne, and they went along with the execution. But we just don't know the specifics. In the end, it really does not affect our story, but I did want to make sure that I mentioned it. Now, on to the siege of Tenochtitlan. The upcoming campaign against the Aztecs would have several military elements. The first would be Alvarado's army, which would go around the northern tip of the lakes and capture the city of Tlacopan and its critical causeway. The second element would be Cristobal de Olid's army, which would head towards Coyocan on the western side of Lake Texcoco, which had a short causeway that connected to the Iztapalapa causeway, which came from the south. The third element was an army under Sandoval. He would take the city of Iztapalapa and its causeway. The final element would be the navy, commanded by Cortes. Now, I do want to try and clarify some of this strategy to explain a few things. Let us remember that there are three main causeways leading into Tenochtitlan. And I want to remind everyone that a causeway can be described as essentially a raised road, and even the term land bridge isn't a bad descriptor. These are not wooden bridges, but earth reinforced with stone and timber. Depending on who we read, the causeways around Tenochtitlan were between 15 and 30 feet wide. 
they would have gaps built into them with bridges so boats could travel from one side of the causeway to the other. As noted, Tenochtitlan had three main causeways. First, there was the Klakopan Causeway, which was the shortest causeway and connected to Tenochtitlan from the western shore of Lake Texcoco. Second, there was the Tepeyac Causeway, which connected to the northern shore of the lake. In the south, you would find the Itztapalapa Causeway. This was the longest causeway into the city. But this last causeway actually consisted of two sections. From Itztapalapa, it actually went northwest and reached an island, and from there it continued directly north to Tenochtitlan. However, there was another very short causeway that connected to that same island. This was the aforementioned Coyocan Causeway. On this island was a small fortress called Holoc. So here was the plan. Once the ground forces were in place, Cortes would lead the brigantines onto the lake. From there, he would support the armies as they advanced over the causeways and at the same time halt the flow of supplies and reinforcements into the city. All of this would, effectively, cut Tenochtitlan off from the outside world. For this episode, I really recommend checking out our map of the Valley of Mexico on our website, explorerspodcast.com. It will really help you understand the upcoming action. However, if you cannot go and see the map, the strategy boils down to this. Cortez's plan is to block the three main entrances into Tenochtitlan with his armies. Then he will use his navy to keep out supplies and reinforcements. From there, it will be a slow advance across the causeways and into the city. The final phase of the Aztec campaign began on May 22, 1521. Alvarado and Olid would lead their armies to the western side of Lake Texcoco toward their destinations of Clacopan and Coyocan. However, they would have a task to accomplish first, which was a detour to the city of Chapultepec, which was located between Clacopan and Coyocan. We have not mentioned this place before, but it was critical for one reason, water. The Chapultepec aqueduct provided fresh water to Tenochtitlan, and everyone knew it was a vital resource to the city. Alvarado and Alid were tasked with cutting off that source. The fighting around Chapultepec would be fierce, but the spears and the bows of the Aztecs were no match for the steel of the Spanish, not to mention their Colon allies. The town would be taken and the aqueduct destroyed. The Aztecs were now without fresh water. Alvarado would then head to Clacopan and find it abandoned, except for the entrance to the causeway, which was heavily guarded. He attempted to push his men onto the causeway, but he was forced to retreat until he could get naval support. In Coyocan, Olid would find the city abandoned, but the causeway undefended. He would take up a position and wait. To the south, Sandoval and his army would reach Itztapalapa on May 31st and engage with the Aztecs. With the armies in place, it was time for the navy to go into action. Cortes took up command on the fleet's flagship, La Capitina. Martin Lopez, the shipbuilder, would be the captain. The fleet would move toward Itztapalapa to support Sandoval and his army. With the Spanish navy on the move, it was time for the Aztecs to challenge them. Cuauhtémoc would send thousands of war canoes to intercept the Spanish navy, a great battle to follow. The first battle of the lake would demonstrate just how formidable the Spanish brigantines would be. Their size and sturdiness allowed them to simply plow into the Aztec canoes, shattering them. And then there was the fire from the cannons and crossbows. The Aztecs found their slings and spears and arrows were futile against the hulls of the ships, and unless the brigantines were not moving, they were almost impossible to swarm around and board. In the end, the Aztecs would retreat, shattered canoes and bodies filling the lake. Meanwhile, the Spanish under Olid would come across the Coyocan Causeway and engage the Aztecs at Holoc. This is where the causeways of Itztapalapa and Coyocan converged, 
It was a critical location, and the Aztecs fought hard to maintain control of it. The Spanish would end up taking the island and its fortress when Cortes and his fleet arrived. The Captain General would land some troops to join the offensive, and the brigantines would provide support for the ground troops. All of this would force the Aztecs to abandon their positions. But that did not mean the end of the battle. Even before the smoke had cleared, the Aztecs would attempt to retake Holoc when Cuauhtémoc sent a host of canoes on a surprise night attack. However, before the attack, Cortes would land three cannons on the island. They would prove to be an important part of the upcoming fight. But nothing would be as important as the naval support. The brigantines would, again, be critical to fighting off the native attack, as they would flank the Aztecs on the causeway, providing a sustained volley of crossbow and arquebus and cannon fire. The Aztec attack would therefore be repulsed, and Holoc would be firmly in the hands of the Spanish. The fortress of Holoc would become Cortez's camp on the causeway and his headquarters for the coming campaign. With all of these moves, Cortez had essentially blocked the causeways in the south and west, but there was also the Tepeyac causeway in the north. Cortez had purposely left this open. He had done this for two reasons. First, he hoped the Aztecs would try and flee Tenochtitlan, and by keeping the causeway open, he wanted to give them an out. Second, if they did flee the causeway, he would have the opportunity to attack them while they were exposed and vulnerable, just like they had done to him the previous year. If that happened, it would be good for Cortez. Unfortunately, the Aztecs did not take the bait, and instead used the causeway to bring in a steady flow of food, water, and reinforcements. This would cause Cortez to dispatch Sandoval and his army to seal off the causeway. Now, Cortez had three armies poised at the entrances to the three causeways leading into Tenochtitlan, and with the navy in operation, it was time to start squeezing the Aztecs. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusion supply. I'm going to run through the typical fighting that is about to take place. This will be a day-by-day slog, so what I describe is pretty much what will happen for several weeks. But one thing I wanted to note was that the fighting that had been happening, and that was about to happen, was fierce. The Aztecs had their backs to the wall, and they were desperate. As the Spanish had shown at the Battle of Otumba, this desperation often brings out an extra edge. Also, this fighting is not something that will allow for half measures. Remember, the Aztecs were fighting their traditional enemies, the Claus Collins. No quarter would be given or asked for on either side. And the Spanish certainly understood that if they were captured, they were destined to become sacrifices for the Aztec gods. This all makes for a bloody and brutal fight, with all sides committed to wiping out the other. As I said, there will be no half-measures here, just the destruction of one's enemy. So let us get an understanding of the combat on the causeways leading into Tenochtitlan. Here's how it would typically go. The Spanish and their allies would advance up the causeways. On both sides, the Spanish would have at least one brigantine, providing support for the advancing troops. This was very important, because if any side was left exposed the Aztecs would send out a bunch of canoes, and the warriors would swarm up any unsupported embankment. 
This was the nightmare that the Spanish had experienced the previous year on their flight from the city. Thus, the ships protected the flanks of the foot soldiers as they advanced up the causeway. By the way, the Spanish cavalry was mostly worthless on the causeways and was not used often. Now, the Aztecs would set up barricades and traps and did try and swarm the Spanish at times, and fighting was always happening, but the superior weaponry and technology of the Spanish and coordinated defense usually allowed them to prevail. The biggest issue for the Spanish were the gaps in the causeway that I mentioned earlier. These gaps were normally covered by bridges, but the Aztecs had destroyed these, leaving a chasm filled with water that needed to be crossed if one wanted to move forward. When the Spanish came upon one of these gaps, they would have to fill it in. Now, these gaps might not be that huge or even that deep. At times, it may have been like walking across a deep stream. But these were natural choke points, and the Aztecs could send canoes at them and rain down missile fire on the men who tried to cross them. On the Night of Sorrows, these gaps in the causeways had proven to be devastated to Cortez and his men. Thus, the Spanish tried to fill them in. They would use anything timber, stone, sacks of earth, reeds, and so forth. Once a gap was filled, the Spanish would push on until they came to another gap, and the process repeated itself. As darkness fell, the Spanish and their allies would retreat from the causeways and go back to their base, whether at Tepeyac, Holac, or Clacopan. The reason for this was that the causeways were much more difficult to defend at night, even with the brigantines, as the canoes of the Aztecs could strike quickly in the dark. The Spanish army would get up the next day and find the gaps in the causeway had been cleared and new barricades constructed by the Aztecs, and the process would repeat itself. Now, this may seem like a fruitless situation. However, there were a few things working to the advantage of Cortes and his men. First, the Aztecs were growing hungrier by the day. Second, as their men were killed, they could not always replace them. And third, the city's defenders were getting exhausted. The Aztecs were working 24 hours a day fighting off the Spanish by day, and clearing the causeways at night. This will all take a toll, and the Spanish will find that they are able to advance a little bit further every day. Eventually, the Spanish would reach Tenochtitlan and venture into the city. Here, they would find the Aztec resistance grow even more determined, and there will be new challenges for the invaders. The narrow streets of Tenochtitlan were difficult for the Spanish cavalry to operate, and there were far too many spots where the Aztecs could stage ambushes. Also, the rooftops proved to be a real problem. The Aztecs would just sit on the roofs of buildings and rain down arrows and spears and rocks. To prevent this, the Spanish began burning down buildings. This would all go on for a couple of weeks. So, on June 10, 1521, the Spanish would begin a coordinated assault on the city, the plan to converge on Templo Mayor, the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan. The attack surprised the Aztecs, who expected the Spanish to conduct their typical slow advance and then retreat as night fell. Instead, there was a hard push into the city. The fighting would go on all day, with Cortez's men reaching Templo Mayor. However, from the temple, Cortez could see the Aztecs rallying, not just within the city, but all around the lake. Canoes were swarming towards Tenochtitlan from everywhere as the Aztecs came to defend the city's most sacred religious site. It's a reminder that the Aztecs were not just in the city. They were all around the lake, hiding in the reeds and in small lakeside villages, just waiting to strike at the invaders. Worried he would be overwhelmed, Cortes would order a retreat, even abandoning one of his precious cannons to the Aztecs in the process. While the attack on Templo Mayor did not provide much military value, it was a blow to the chin to the Aztecs. The deep penetration into the city by the Spanish made the Aztecs look weak, and some of the surrounding native entities, the fence-sitters, opted to throw their lot in with the Spanish at this time. 
This would provide a boost to Cortez, and upwards of 50,000 Teshkokans would join him on June 15th. With this new infusion of men, Cortez planned another attack. This time, his Indian allies went first, filling in the gaps in the causeway. The Aztecs were better prepared for this second incursion, and the fighting would be brutal. The city's defenders were brave and determined, and only gave up ground grudgingly. It made for another bloody day. Cortez wrote this about the Aztec warriors, quote, When I saw how determined they were to die in their defense, I deduced two things, that we would regain little or none of the riches they had taken from us, and they gave us cause, and indeed obliged us, to destroy them utterly, End quote. Now, there is some serious eye-rolling to that statement, as Cortez had taken all the riches from them in the first place. But that aside, it demonstrates just how determined the Aztecs were to fight, and also just how far Cortez knew he was going to have to go to defeat them. Still, despite those thoughts, Cortez would send another message to Cuauhtémoc, trying to get him to surrender, but the message was ignored. So the second major attack happened and was ultimately repulsed, and the Spanish retreated to their camps. One thing that the Spanish started to do at this time was to fill in the gaps in the causeways so that they were permanent, as opposed to haphazardly just tossing stuff in so people could cross the gap at that moment. I imagine this meant transporting more and more earth and rock onto the causeway and filling in the gaps so it could not easily be removed. In Tenochtitlan, Cuauhtémoc had established his base in Clatiloco, which is in the northwest tip of Tenochtitlan. This was the famous marketplace of the city and featured the tallest temple, a perfect spot to command his forces as he could see everything that was happening. So for the next week or so, the Spanish would attack every day, and each day the gaps in the causeway were filled in more and more. The fighting in the city would continue, a war of attrition slowly eroding away the strength of the Aztecs. Still, at the end of each day, the Spanish would pull back down the causeways to their bases, as getting caught in the city or on the causeways at night could be a disaster. And on cue, we have a disaster for the Spanish. Well, not a disaster, but a perfect example of what not to do in this fight. On June 23rd, Captain Alvarado and his men camped on the Clacopan Causeway instead of pulling back to their base on the shore. The Aztecs would attack them. Alvarado and his men would give chase, including crossing a shallow breach in the causeway. And that is when the trap was sprung. As soon as Alvarado and his men had crossed the breach, hundreds of war canoes pounced. In the end, 50 Spaniards would be trapped trying to retreat across the shallow breach, which now was filled with enraged Aztec warriors. Most of the Spaniards would be killed, but five were captured and Alvarado was wounded. The Spanish would be forced to watch as their five companions were sacrificed atop the Great Pyramid of the city. Cortez, as you can imagine, was livid at what had happened. His men should never have crossed a gap like they had done, and he ordered them to be more diligent and disciplined. He did not remove Alvarado from command. The captain had proven to be an excellent soldier, and despite the recent defeat, had accomplished a great deal on his push into the city. This trap was typical of the Aztec strategy. The Aztecs had learned that they could not always fight the Spanish face-to-face due to their lack of armor and weaponry. Thus, they adapted their tactics, employing surprise and stealth to their advantage. Another Aztec trap almost cost Cortez two of his brigantines. In that incident, the two brigantines went after a flotilla of canoes that were trying to bring supplies into the city. However, the flotilla was a ruse. The Spanish ships were led into some shallows where the Aztecs had planted some stakes just below the water's surface. The ships would strike the stakes and get stuck. Dozens of war canoes would then come out of hiding, swarming the brigantines. Men were dragged away by the Aztecs and both captains killed. The only reason the ships were saved was some brigantines were able to reach them and drive off the Aztecs. 
So it was late June, 1521. The rains had arrived. It was hot. Cortez and his men were weary from the constant fighting. The expedition's captains would encourage Cortez to conduct an all-out assault on Clatilocal, the marketplace where Cotimoc was holed up. If it could be taken, they argued, the will of the Aztecs might crumble. Cortez would agree to this attack, which began at sunrise on June 30th. Captain Sandoval and the bulk of his force at Tepeyac would join Captain Alvarado at Clacopan, supported by six brigantines. The plan was to cross the causeway and meet up with Cortez at the marketplace, where they would combine and crush Cuauhtémoc. Cortez and Captain Olid, also supported by brigantines and allied canoes, would enter the city in the south and break into three groups, each making for the marketplace and the rendezvous with Sandoval and Alvarado. For Cortez and his men, the attack went well, at first. They crossed over the causeway and pushed the Aztecs back. But the Aztecs had some surprises waiting. One of the columns came across a gap in the streets. I should remind you that Tenochtitlan was on an island, and there were canals all over the city. This meant these gaps we've talked about in the causeways were common within the city as well. However, within the city, you could usually find an alternative route around an unbridged canal. Well, one of the columns would come to a gap and elect to cross it, hastily filling it in just enough to make it to the other side. Well, that is when the Aztecs struck. They sprung out of their hiding places and drove right at the Spanish, while men on rooftops attacked from above. The Spanish were driven back, many men falling into the gap and being pounced on by Aztecs from all sides. Cortez and his column would come to aid their comrades and be swept up in the fighting. They found themselves pulling the dead and dying out of the breach. And here, disaster almost struck. Cortez would be set upon by a group of Aztec warriors who tried to grab him and carry him away. Upon seeing the Captain General in peril, one of his personal bodyguards, Cristobal de Olia, rushed to his side and saved him. Olia would die in the fighting, and Cortez would lead his men on a difficult retreat back to the causeway, and then their camp at Holoc. This was urban warfare at its most deadly. Several dozen Spaniards would be killed in the fighting, and about 70 others would be captured. It must have been a devastating moment for Cortez, although we should point out that the Aztecs' penchant for trying to capture their enemies instead of just killing them may have saved Cortez again. On the other side of the city, Captain Sandoval and Alvarado fought towards the marketplace. However, their advance would be brought to a halt when the Aztecs tossed them the severed heads of five Spanish soldiers, just taken from Cortez's men. The Aztecs then told the Spanish that they had Cortez's head as well, and they would soon all die. Fearing their captain general dead, Alvarado and Sandoval retreated. That night, the sacrifices began, and the Spanish watched and listened as their comrades were killed atop the temples of Tenochtitlan. For Cuauhtémoc, the victory was a final opportunity to win the war. He sent messages to his former vassal states, such as Chalco and Cuernavaca, and told them of the defeat of the Spanish army, and he urged the people of Mexico to unite and drive out the invaders. This message would be delivered with some gruesome trophies, such as the heads of horses that had been killed, as well as the heads and other limbs of Spanish soldiers. Cuauhtémoc would also send out another message to his people at this time. He said that a prophecy had been delivered to him by the gods. Within eight days, all the Spanish would be dead. It was time to rise up and throw off the invading devils. Yikes, that's scary. So, things had changed rather abruptly for Cortez. He had lost a large portion of his force, at least a 100 men, and we never get the numbers of Indian allies lost in the fighting. It would have been staggeringly high. Well, those losses and Quotimok's ominous prophecy caused many of Cortez's allies to take pause in their support. Some backed off, not fulfilling commitments to Cortez, while others simply departed. 
The next eight to ten days were difficult as the Spanish recovered from their defeat. They would keep trying to fill in the causeways during the day, and each night they would have to watch and listen as some of their comrades were sacrificed atop the Great Pyramid. Now, in response to Cuauhtémoc's messages, there were two uprisings in the surrounding area. One was in the south, near Cuernavaca, and the other was in the east, in the mountains, involving the Otomi people. Despite his men being in tough shape, Cortés elected to shore up his relationships with his native allies. Therefore, he sent two separate forces of about a 100 men to each of the areas in revolt. The native allies, with the help of the newly arrived Spanish soldiers, would quell the rebellions in short order. This meant that the great uprising that Cuauhtémoc hoped for amongst his fellow natives did not happen. I mean, a lot of these people were sympathetic, and they wanted to help Cuauhtémoc, but they feared sending their men would leave them vulnerable. Some would respond by sending food and supplies, but much of this would be captured by the Spanish. The other thing that Cortés did was to simply wait. Instead of attacking Tenochtitlan over the next couple of weeks, he secured the causeways and had his brigantines tighten their patrols around the city. And thus, the prophecy about all the dead Spanish came and went, and all the Spanish were still alive. When this happened, some people began to doubt Cuauhtémoc, and those fence-hopping natives started to jump back to the Spanish side again. It also didn't hurt that a huge number of Otomi warriors, I have read more than 50,000, joined Cortés. Also, there were Spanish reinforcements, which included much-needed supplies, including gunpowder, which had been running very low. So, it was mid-July, and the Spanish were getting back up to strength. And here, Cortés and his men noted that the causeways, which were usually cleared out at night, were being left as is. The reason for this would come when several Aztecs were caught trying to flee Tenochtitlan. They confessed that the city was starving. There was no food or water. Years later, one of the Aztecs said this about the situation, quote, There was no fresh water to drink, only stagnant water and the brine of the lake, and many people died of dysentery, end quote. As you can see, the blockade was working. Cortes sensed the end was near. He would try opening negotiations with the Aztecs yet again. He told Cuauhtémoc that there was no way he could win. If he would surrender, it would save many lives. But the proud Aztec emperor, despite exchanging some messages with Cortes, was unmoved. His people would fight on. It was here that Cortes knew what he would have to do. He said, quote, my plan was to raise to the ground all the houses on both sides of the streets along which we advanced, so that we should not move a step without leaving everything behind us in ruins. End quote. So that was it. He would destroy the city, house by house, building by building, block by block. He would give his enemy nowhere to hide, nowhere to set up an ambush, no place to attack from an elevated position. Cortez's offensive would begin with regular attacks into the city in late July 1521. The Spanish and their allies did exactly as Cortez had planned. They destroyed everything in a methodical push into Tenochtitlan. The Aztecs would eventually be forced back to the last stronghold of the empire, the Clatiloco marketplace. After many days, the Spanish would eventually converge on Clatiloco and break any coordinated Aztec defense. The Spanish flags were raised atop the city's temples, and the idols were tossed down the steps. At this point, Cortes controlled about 90% of the city, with the Aztecs holed up in a few bunker-like locations, refusing to surrender. Fighting would continue around the city, but it waned as each pocket of resistance was pacified. Meanwhile, people would emerge from the rubble of the city. Everyone, the women, the children, the warriors, were emaciated and exhausted. Most had no will or strength to continue. Unfortunately, the survivors would face the wrath of the Claus Collins, who unleashed years of anger and rage against the defenseless civilians. The result was a slaughter. 
No one was spared, not even the women or children. Cortez would say this of the situation, quote, No race, however savage, has ever practiced such fierce or unnatural cruelty as the natives of these parts. End quote. That's a pretty harsh review from a guy who had butchered thousands and enslaved many more thousands. In the end, it is said that upwards of 50,000 people were killed and enslaved after the fall of the city. So Cortez waited for Cuauhtémoc to give up the fight, even trying to engage him in negotiations, but it was fruitless. Finally, Cortez ordered an assault on the last stronghold of the Aztecs. This sent people fleeing to Tenochtitlan in the chaos, something I should note that had been happening for days. People got in the canoes and tried to paddle to safety, or they swam to the lake's shores and made for a friendly town or village. The Spanish brigantines tried to stop these people, but it was impossible to get everyone. On the night of August 12, 1521, after 75 days of fighting, Cuauhtémoc, along with the king of Tlacopan, as well as their families, tried to join the exodus out of the city. They hopped into a canoe and tried to slip away in the dark. However, they would be stopped by a Spanish ship and captured. And that pretty much signals the end of the siege of Tenochtitlan. Cortes was victorious, although all he had was a city and smoldering ruins to show for it, and a lot of dead bodies. Cotemoc would be brought before Cortes, and with La Malinche translating, he was recorded as saying, quote, I have already done everything in my power to defend my kingdom and free it from your hands. And since my fortune has been unfavorable, take my life, which would be very just. And this will put an end to the Mexican kingdom, since you have destroyed my city and killed my vassals. End quote. So that is it. The date was August 13, 1521. The Aztec Empire was done, as was the city of Tenochtitlan. Wow, that is quite the experience. I am going to leave things right here for today. But know that there is one final wrap-up episode that we will do, and there is a lot to cover. We will examine the aftermath of the fall of Tenochtitlan, but at the 30,000-foot level, as it is a huge, huge subject. Also, we will touch on the lives of some of the participants in this series, including Cuauhtémoc, La Malinche, and Cortez's captains. And we will cover the remaining years of Cortez's life, which are not uneventful. So that is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed our narrative. I will see you next time. Thank you so much for coming along on this ride. I wish you all safety and good health. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.